this episode, we talked to Sarah Vowell about her new book, Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. Updates on arts and entertainment, interviews with celebrities and marquee guests. This is WSJ Speakeasy. Hey, this is Christopher John Farley, a senior editor at the Wall Street Journal. I'm talking to Sarah Vowell, the author of the new book, Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. Sarah, thanks for talking to the Wall Street Journal. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, I was just on Amazon.com, and I happened to notice that your new book, <laughs> Lafayette in the Somewhat United States, is the number one bestseller in French history. It's also the number three bestseller. Is there a competition in that? Well, that's, that's what I was wondering. It's the number three bestseller. It's also the number four bestseller in various forms, Kindle and audiobook. So I'm wondering if you think that means that you're either the greatest chronicler of French-American history since, since de Tocqueville, or there's not a whole lot of competition in that area, and maybe Americans need to pay more attention to French history. Which is yeah. it, do you think? Um, well, I did study some French at Montana State, so that probably <laughs> indicates I was destined for excellence in that area. Um, I mean, it's funny. I mean, my book is about a Frenchman, but um, pretty. I guess I I I mention oh, you know, the French Revolution not particularly kindly a couple of times and uh, I think I talk about going to the ceremony at Lafayette's grave in Paris but mostly the book is about um, the American Revolution though I guess a lot of it actually is about how the American revolutionaries could not have won their war without the help of the French government so yeah I guess if you were into French history you could do worse. <laughs> but, of course, you're right. It is a lot about the American Revolution and yeah. the part that Lafayette played in it. But one thing that struck me as I re- read this book, and I read a lot of books about the Founding Fathers, is really? what, we really, what we really, yeah, you know, um, uh, it's, it's, some, it's sort of a pop, uh, pastime of mine. But what I find huh. fascinating about your particular book is the fact that um, what we really want to meet these guys I mean, I always think that, you know, obviously the things to admire about, you know, Washington and Jefferson and Madison, but there are also some things that are linked to their time that you think if you ever sat down and had dinner with them, you'd either end up in a fight or in my case, I might end up being enslaved. So I'm wondering when you, when you go back and think about these guys, you think to yourself, it doesn't appeal to you. It does not appeal to me. I mean, do you think, you know, I love some parts of Lafayette, but I don't know that you say that like you're saying, are you asking me, are they, I guess it's like that TV executive question about characters, like, um, is anybody likable? I mean, I, I find my protagonist, Lafayette, he has a certain boyish charm. I mean, when he comes over to volunteer with the Continental Army, he's 19, you know, and and then George Washington has a sort of stoic, middle-aged charm. Uh, I mean, I really like his kind of stick and, you know, I mean, I think I mentioned there's the part in the book right before Yorktown where Washington gets to go back to Mount Vernon for the first time in, what was it, six years. And, uh, you know, the the Americans who went to the dinner talked about how gracious and, and, you know, festive it was. And then the French officers Washington had invited to dinner um, sort of considered it uh, a bit. Uh, rustic and unremarkable because, you know, they were coming from Versailles. Um, 
I mean, do what I would. Are these people? Are you asking the like? Would you want to have a beer with the founding fathers? I mean, um, Franklin probably, and you know, Washington and Lafayette was uh, kind of had his. He was a sort of puppy dog type of person. I think Jefferson. The word Jefferson used to describe him was canine. Um, they're. I mean, they're they're. They're tough, you know. Washington was a bit tough. I mean, it is, it was, and they're, you know, America is a little bit more of a Spartan place than France. So, I mean, some of the fun of researching the French alliance with the Americans was reading what the French had to say about the Americans. I mean, Lafayette was kind of um, an anomaly in that he volunteered in the American army, and he was kind of from this sort of bumpkin area of France, Auvergne. He was like a real country boy himself. So he always had nothing but accolades for his American allies. And the French did, too, eventually, once they fought with them. <laughs> but when they, you know, when the French um, army uh, comes over to uh, help out uh, George Washington toward the end of the war, they are amazed at what these people look like. I mean, some of them are, like, practically naked. Um, you know, much of the war, the revolutionaries don't have shoes. Um, and then... I mean, one, I remember one French officer was describing uh, being invited to have dinner with Washington in his tent, and this guy was appalled that Washington served the entire meal on a single plate. You yeah, know? I love that line when you mention it in the book. <laughs> they were used to courses and, you know, a lot of variety and a meal, like, lasting a while, and Washington just plopped all the food in one plate and handed it to him. And so, I mean, at first the French just think these Americans are just these you know, ruffians, but then they start fighting with them and they can't believe how how actually good these guys are at um, warfare considering how they look, which is, you know, not good. Well, some of what you said leads me to another question, is that throughout the, um, your book, you have all these great descriptive letters from Washington and Adams and Lafayette and people around their circle that really take you into the heart and soul of the revolutionary moment. But of course, today, we don't send letters anymore. We send emails, we send texts. And I'm wondering, do you think that um, people have just become dumber? Or has our, has our media, the way we communicate, become uh, less capable of communicating some of these great, deep, rich thoughts? Hmm. Um, I don't want, I mean, I don't know how people become dumber. Um, I mean. But when I hear the sophistication by which, you know, Lafayette sort of maybe details. Maybe white men um, don't seem to be that much smarter. The rest of us, you know, um, <laughs> now get to go to college. So I would say, you know, the the women and the, the non-white guys, now that we get to have uh, post-secondary education, maybe we're a little brighter. But in terms of the, the letters, I mean, that is... That is something I think historians in the future will, you know, they're they're going to be at a loss. I mean, uh, there there's something about that form. I mean, I'm old enough that I come from, I guess, the last letter writing generation, you know, and there's something about sitting down at, you know, with a quill, I guess, where you do sort of pour your heart out. And certainly like with Lafayette, I mean, a lot of his greatest letters are to his wife, his poor pregnant teenage wife that he's abandoned to come to America for. In some of his letters, they're a little more 
theoretical in that he's trying to tell her what his goals are in coming to America, and he's kind of puffing himself up a little bit, and you know he's trying to tell her that he's he you know he's come to America to help found this society that will be full of tolerance and and justice and, and you know it, it will be the basically the capital of human happiness and so all of his letters to her are kind of um um him trying to uh, give a certain grandiosity to what he's done to her which is you know abandoned her while she's pregnant so there's that and then like i mean the letters between washington and and lafayette some of the letters are just from across the camp at valley forge you know but they're for they're some of washington's most tender missives because lafayette you know was an orphan and a teenager and washington had no biological children of his own and so um so the relationship between Washington and Lafayette becomes like a father-son relationship pretty quickly, and and their letters, and you know they remain friends and correspond until Washington's death. And I mean, some of them are very deep and and very emotional and affectionate, and and then others they're like they're kind of like an email you would send your friend. I mean, I think I remember one letter Lafayette sends to Washington just says, "We have received the hams." You know, because Washington was sending Lafayette uh, Virginia ham to France, I guess, as a gift. They were constantly exchanging gifts across the Atlantic. So, um, yeah, the, it definitely humanizes them. I mean, in, of all the things Americans, if when they picture George Washington, I don't think they picture him, you know, mailing a ham to his buddy. Um, so the letters are, they just have so much breadth because... I mean, because it was the only way to communicate there, there is all this lofty stuff like Lafayette describing what he hopes America will be. But then there's a lot of, you know, just usual business like here's where I am. But even when Lafayette writes his wife, you know, here's where I am and he's at Valley Forge. And and I think he kind of, I don't remember how he puts it, but he says, you know, in case you hear from someone who's been here about, basically about what a hellhole it is, you know, and he's trying to describe, like, why he's staying there still and why Washington needs him instead of, you know, him coming home to his family. So, yeah, the letters were, I mean, just a gold mine. I mean, the letters between John Adams and his wife Abigail are, like, probably my favorite because they're, you know, basically, I mean... I don't know, is there a brighter couple in the 18th century and the way they describe, you know, what's going on? You know, he's off and away, and she's describing what's happening in Massachusetts, and he's explaining what's going on in Congress, and and she's telling him she just saw Washington for the first time. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's an incredible treasure trove that, you know, future generations will – lose out on but if you if you're correct and we are just dumber now maybe it's not such a loss (laughs) i don't know i mean i really don't know i mean the one thing though i guess we have going for us now even if uh we're not necessarily as always erudite is people are a little more frank and candid about what's going on with them emotionally probably to our detriment. So sometimes with, especially with someone like George Washington, you're always, he's very, um, you know, 
emotionally clamped down. And, and also he and his wife were, you know, so private that um, their letters were burned. I think she burned his letters when he died. So they just didn't want anyone reading those. And there are only a few left. Um, so, yeah, letters. Yeah, but what you said about Marie Lafayette's wife and the way he abandoned um, her. She's, uh, Adrian. Uh, yeah. Adrian. So she's a teen. He's a teen. He gets heck mm-hmm. out of France. Um, she's pregnant. He still he still has left her sort of there alone to sort of deal with all that. It really spoke to me about how much women are on the margins of the narrative that you have here. But there is one moment where you sort of relocate them, where you you you, you, you talk about seeing this reenactor sort of working with yarn and how that speaks to the homespun movement and how important that was in sort of locating the and building sort of the new American ethic and actually resisting the, the British. I found that fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love, I mean, writing about the history of public life, you're, um, sometimes um, I don't get to write about um, my own gender as much as I would like, but I mean, one of the ways I write about history is going to historic sites or events or whatever. And that um, when I saw when I was at that reenactment, it was actually a battle reenactment, you know, but there are some female reenactors, some of them, you know, dressed as as dressed as soldiers and 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 participate in the uh, war games and whatnot. And some of them are just, you know, behind the scenes doing all the um girl jobs, as I like to call them, and uh, there was this one that was like falling down this little rabbit hole where I was watching her, where she was winding her yarn, and, and, it, and it made me think about, um, she, she just like transported me almost into this vision of what it must have been like to be one of these women, and, and I do like, you know, when I can talk about what's going on, um, especially with the wives, you know, and, and like certainly with Lafayette because he abandoned his family, including his pregnant wife, or, you know, thinking about, you know, there was the war, which basically lasts from 1775 to the um, treaty in 1783, but there was 10 years before the first shots where, you know, the rebellion keeps cooking up. And so much of that, like, first part of it, the first 10 years of that rebellion was, um, you know, conducted by the women because a lot of what the initial rebellions were about were, were about the taxes, and, and one way they rebelled was... Um, through boycotts. So like the women started manufacturing their own cloth and wool and as a way to, you know, avoid purchasing items from Britain and paying the taxes on those items. Um, And the homespun movement, especially it becomes like one of the great rebellions and, you know, leads to, you know, that great moment when George Washington is inaugurated as president wearing his, homespun wool suit, you know, and so it kind of takes on this larger meaning or, you know, I was thinking about like the Boston Tea Party, how that gets all this attention because it's such a dramatic event, you know, these guys dressing up like Indians and throwing the tea off the warp, but mostly the way the colonists, um, you know, rebelled against the tea tax was they stopped drinking tea and the women colonists, you know, tried to make the best of that and started, you know, experimenting with, you know, making tea out of basil or, 
you know, things like that, just day-to-day, like the day-to-day hardships involved in in that kind of, like, everyday rebellion. So, yeah, where I can, I just, I mean, I really like, I really like, um, I like a good tangent, and um, especially with this <laughs> and war, who doesn't? I think there are just so many unexplored little corners that if I can, you know, take a little detour, I will. Okay, on that note, we're going to take a short break and be right back with Sarah Vowell, author of Lafayette in the somewhat United States. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot WSJ. Hi, I'm Paul Vigna. I'm Steve Grosser. And this is the promo where we tell you how badly you're going to feel if you do not subscribe to the Money Beat podcast. Let me tell you, my friends, you are going to feel worse than a sad trader on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. You are going to feel worse than a short seller on the day of a big rally. You are going to feel worse than a Kardashian without hair care products. Okay, Paul, I, th- I think we get the picture. All right. Go to iTunes and WSJ.com slash podcasts. You want to sign up for this one. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, WSJ Speakeasy. Okay, um, we're here talking with Sarah Vowell about her new book, Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. Well, I'm here. She's somewhere else. We don't know where, but she's calling in. So, Sarah, thanks for talking with us. You're welcome. Okay, your publisher very helpfully kept pinging me about, you know, Lafayette in the Somewhat United States isn't just about Lafayette. It's about all these other characters, too. Of course, all along I'd planned to talk about some of the other people that pop up in the book. And one guy that's always fascinated me is Charles Cornwallis. Charles Cornwallis. He's the guy, of course, who ended up surrendering to the um, to the U.S. forces, including Lafayette and Hamilton and George Washington and a bunch of the other... And the French forces. I mean, there were actually more French forces than American forces when he um, surrendered, but go on. <laughs> but what I find interesting about this guy is he continued to fail upwards. I mean, he lost the, the, the biggest part of the British Empire, and after that, instead of being run out of town, he is cheered when he goes back to Britain, goes back to Britain and he later becomes gen, general governor in India. How does That's that happen? Right. How does this you guy know, keep he, on failing and, and succeeding? Yeah, there's a big marble statue of him in, in St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, it's That was interesting how, you know, some of the um, British commanders who are um, responsible for the loss of America, their their reputations are forever tarnished. You know, like um, the uh, commander-in-chief, Henry Clinton, who is supposed to be uh, coming to Cornwallis's aid at Yorktown because he kind of dilly-dallied and didn't get there in time. He, his his reputation is just over, you know, and same thing with some of the other um, British generals um, like uh, William Howe, who he won um, control of Philadelphia and he like trounced George Washington in a couple of Washington's biggest losses. But because he used his troops 
to do that instead of helping his co-worker um, at Saratoga, which was the first big British loss, um, Howe's reputation was damaged. But Cornwallis, for some reason, even though he's the one who like literally does the surrendering or he is too embarrassed to do it himself and has his second-in-command actually do the surrendering, um, Cornwallis kind of gets off unscathed. And I don't completely understand why that is. Part of it might be he was um, very nobly born, but part, he must have just um, been better at the PR war back in Britain once he got home. Like he actually, he and Henry Clinton um, had a bit of a pamphlet war at one point where, you know, each one is trying to tell his side of the story but Cornwallis yeah he goes on um he he's you know they send him to run India and he you know like I say is he's enshrined in as a marble statue in St. Paul's Cathedral you know and um he it doesn't really matter that he he lost I mean it's history is strange that way the way uh, you know, the way people decide what to care about is sometimes random and illogical and um, inexplicable. And Lafayette's relationship to Marie Antoinette is also kind of fascinating because it starts off, he's a clumsy kid stepping on her toes in a dance. And later on, during the French Revolution, he actually helps save her from the mob and basically saves her head at least for a time. Yeah, well, I mean, it's probably one reason Lafayette wanted to come to America was he he just didn't fit in at Marseille. And, and, you know, when his friend uh, Louis XVI becomes king and and his new wife, uh, Marie Antoinette, you know, start um, their social life at Versailles, Lafayette definitely was not one of its brighter lights. And, you know, she did laugh at him for you know, being a bad dancer. But Lafayette was, I mean, he was that rare person in human history, like a true moderate, you know. So, you know, he's involved in the beginning of the French Revolution because he hopes to establish a constitutional monarchy, you know, with the king as a figurehead um, who still has his head. And so when the mob, you know, goes nuts, like uh you know, Lafayette envisions the beginning of the French Revolution as, you know, kind of, um, he envisions it like Philadelphia in, you know, 1775. And, and you know, he, he imagines this gentleman's debate. And what happens is the mob goes crazy and, he, you know, he spends the first few days of the revolution just riding his horse around Paris trying to keep the mob from hanging people and you know he's a, and when um when they uh you know there's that big it's called the I think mean, the mother's march when there's the big um uproar over bread and hunger and all the mothers march from Paris to Versailles um, Lafayette goes with them because he's afraid they're going to murder the royal family. And, you know, the mob, in fact, does murder at least one, maybe two of the royal family's guards. And, and Lafayette goes out onto the balcony of Versailles and kisses Marie Antoinette's hand and kind of calms them down because, you know, to the crowd, Lafayette has all, all of this credibility from being involved in the American Revolution. And so he does calm the crowd enough to get the royal family back to Paris. And then, you know, the revolution becomes increasingly more radical and bombastic, and Lafayette himself has to... Um, try to escape uh, France to, you know, 
keep his head attached to his neck. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he was he was still a he was still an aristocrat, and like I say, he was this moderate. You know, he thought like France could have uh, a relatively liberal constitutional monarchy, and you know what he wanted was to you know write that constitution and for France to become more democratic. And um, he didn't see how murdering, uh, you know. The royal family, what it, you know, it just it wasn't it just wasn't like murder wasn't something he was up for. Murder wasn't his thing. Well, along those lines, you know, throughout the book, you read up with this really interesting sort of bromance between Lafayette and George Washington. He's kind of like George Washington's sort of surrogate son. Washington's wary of him at first, but then grows to really love and embrace him. And of course, Lafayette is all for that. And later on, they both make sort of spectacular choices that really helped define their countries where Washington sets, steps down after two terms. And for his part, Lafayette declines to become dictator of France when it's sort of offered to him in 1830. And I wonder, do you think that to, to a certain extent Lafayette was influenced by Washington's choice when he declined to sort of take over his country when he had the chance to do so? I mean, who does that? Who turns down a dictatorship? I mean... I think the I think the thing about Washington and Lafayette and you know a lot of the other founders they were real republicans they really believed in a representative government and so later on you know when Lafayette kind of eschews power at least twice maybe I can't remember how many times part of it is he he doesn't want it you know, sort of like Washington. Washington really didn't have much of a choice to become the first president. But um, like Lafayette, from the get-go, was opposed to Napoleon and like never lifted a finger to help Napoleon because he was so uh, outraged by Napoleon, you know, crowning himself emperor and running France like a dictatorship. Like these guys really believed in representative democracy, Washington and Lafayette. And I think some of um, some of Washington's, you know, not wanting to become king and, and stepping down after two terms, I think some of that was he really believed in the will of the people and consent of the governed and all that, but he really just wanted to go home, you know. I mean, he was a real gentleman farmer, and he loved his home. And, you know, you go to Mount Vernon, and it's all about his gardens and his crops and, you know, the things he did inside the house. And and he was a real homebody. And, I mean, that was just a fluke of history that the first person to run our government, um, you know, his just wanting to go home was a real check on whatever ambition he had or whatever will to power he had. It really, um, it's not, not every guy has that, you know, as history will show. So some of that with Washington was just, he was just homesick, you know. And I mean, I really feel for him, like, as a, you know, I mean, one of the things I love about being a writer is because I'm a homebody, too. Like, I just, I really like, I like being at home. And that part of Washington, I really identify with. And, you know, you feel for him, like, when he leaves to go to Philadelphia, 
1775, he doesn't know he, he's not going to go home for, he's not going to see his home for six more years, you know? And a lot of, um, sometimes in his letters, he, especially at his darkest moments, and he had so many of them during that war, you know, he, he takes a moment and he writes his, I think the guy's his cousin, the one he left in charge of running the day-to-day at Mount Vernon, and, and he takes a moment to, you know, instruct this guy on what he wants done in his dining room. <laughs> and, and part of it is just, you know, it's what Washington was fighting for, was for, you know, for his home. And, uh, and he wants to be back there. And so it is, um, it is because he believes in, you know, Republican democracy. But I think that he, you know, turned down becoming a, a forever king, but um, of course, I think, uh, of course, since that home was filled with with African slaves, I'm I'm less um, able to identify with his homesickness. <laughs> yes, well, he did. You know, Washington, the one, his own slaves. Um, there were some of the slaves there. I'm yes, obviously that's a big uh, asterisk on all of this, <laughs> and I personally I don't run away from that in the book. But you know, Washington did. Upon his death, a lot of his own personal slaves were freed, unlike, say, um, Jefferson. I mean, the idea of home and these guys is really interesting. And with Jefferson, it's the most interesting, you know, because you go to his home and and you see, like, all of his gadgets and everything about Mount Vernon and its architecture and its decoration. and, And you see, like, some of it is Jefferson and his curiosity and his love for life and his you know, interest in science and agriculture and all of that. But, you know, you look out the window at where they have the reconstructive slave cabins and you see, like, the literal cost of uh, his intellectual uh, curiosity. So, uh, well, yeah, uh, speaking of that. Speaking of Jefferson. That. And Lafayette, you know, was he was always uh, an abolitionist and, in fact, um, after he comes home from America, he and his wife purchase a plantation in South America and for the sole purpose of freeing the, the um, slaves. And then he, they hire them back and also like, give them education and wages and stuff. So Lafayette was, uh, he was a real abolitionist the whole time and, uh, and um, at least did something. Yeah, it's interesting you draw that contrast because, um, of course, on Broadway right now, there's something that you've labeled as your favorite Treasury Secretary musical, Hamilton. <laughs> and in, in that yes. show, David Diggs, the actor slash rapper, he plays a dual role of both Lafayette and Jefferson, two yeah. people who couldn't be more different. What did you think of having one actor play both those parts, having written about Lafayette and, and, and having such a, a clear knowledge of the contrast between the two men. Um, well, it's interesting to think about. I mean, some of that is, you know, technical because the first half of the musical is uh, leading up to the end of the Revolutionary War, and then the second half just takes place when they're, the founders are trying to construct a working government. Uh, so, and Lafayette is back in France, and, and um, it makes some sense. I mean, David Diggs, uh, I think, really pulls it off. He obviously has so much charisma and, and talent and, and, you know, 
portrays them fairly differently, except, I mean, they are, what do I want to say about this? I mean, Lafayette and Jefferson were good friends, you know, and I mean, I, I'm sure, I mean, there's a really touching moment when Lafayette comes back to America as an old man in 1824, and, and when he pulls up at uh, Monticello, there's not a dry eye in the house when he and Jefferson embrace, and when, you know, when Jefferson had been in Paris all those years after the war as the American minister in Paris, Lafayette was kind of his partner in crime in helping you know, with really like workaday stuff, like opening up French markets to American goods and stuff like that. So they were very, um, they were very close friends uh, during those years. I mean, obviously Lafayette had um, a major problem with Jefferson and his slaves, and then Madison and his slaves. I mean, there's a little bit of, um, I can't remember. I think it might have been one of Madison's slaves. Someone wrote down a remembrance one of them had when Lafayette was visiting in 1824 and, uh, you know, uh, going at Madison for owning the slaves while the slave was driving the carriage or something. So um, he, he, I mean, Lafayette had to deal with that aspect of these people just like you and I do, just like every generation of Americans afterwards has. I mean, it's a real conundrum and he didn't uh shy away from criticizing them but he still you know he still loved these men whom he saw as as brothers of course you're not just the author of lafayette in the somewhat united states your new book you're also known to many people as the voice of violet in the incredibles the 2004 pixar animated film that my family completely loves. And, I'm, and I know there's a sequel in the works. It's supposed to be set for 2019. Have you started working <laughs> on it yet? Have you started voicing your character? What's going on with that? I have not uh, started working on it. I did uh, bump into Brad Bird during my book tour, and he, I think there might be, the script is either finished or getting there. I think maybe at some point this calendar year, um, we might start recording but I, I, I have no confirmation of that, just, you know, uh, a few rumors here and there. Uh, but I'm, I'm perfectly happy to. I mean, I love working with him and all of those people at Pixar, and I, I love that character. So I am very curious to find out, you know, what's next for her. Of course, Brad Bird is the director. I can't believe it took that long to do a sequel to, you know, one of the best animated well, movies he's ever. he's been busy. It I mean, doesn't matter. He should have gotten this done. Part of that is um, Brad Bird, and he, you know, he really cares about what he does. He really cares about what he works on, and he, um, uh, I, I think, uh, knowing him, it makes perfect sense to me. From a, from a, you're, I'm talking to the Wall Street Journal, and I understand your publication is somewhat interested in profits. <laughs> it does not make sense, but knowing. Um, knowing Brad and how much thought and care and passion and heart and and intellect goes into everything he does, um, it, it makes perfect sense to me. I mean, why, why do it unless, you know, we can do it the way he wants to do it? That's my feeling. I mean, one answer to that is gazillions of dollars, but um, I would rather wait and... Um, 
you know, be part of something that we're all proud of. Well, the book is Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. The author is Sarah Vowell. And Sarah, thanks a lot for talking to the Wall Street Journal. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.